The greatest stories that we have ever heard or read or even been a part of personally have been more than likely stories that were marked by tension. Tension makes stories interesting. Think about your favorite book or your favorite play or your favorite film. When things get stirred up and the stakes are extremely high, and the solution seems to be out of reach and impossible, that's just when things get interesting. And we've got this kind of love-hate relationship with suspense and tension. It's like when we're watching a movie or we're reading a book, we're like, I want to put it down, but I can't put it down. It kind of like draws us in. There's this tension in our response to tensions, like compounding tension, tricky tension. Oscar Wilde once famously said, the suspense is terrible. I hope it will last. The, the suspense is killing me, but I love it. Like, I, I want to stop looking, but I can't stop looking. The, and so the question is, why? Why, why, does this, why does tension have the ability to kind of welcome us in and draw us in? I think it's because we know that it's leading to something important. You see, here's the other thing about tension. It's not only, it not only makes things interesting, it makes things happen. Tension makes or breaks a situation or an outcome. Tension has the, uh, has the ability and the potential to either devastate or catapult. Any good story, in any good story, the tension is leveraged to further a favorable outcome. And we see that in the greatest story ever told, in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As we are hung over the ledge thinking, like, how is this thing going to work out? As the tension builds, as the suspense is there, in the catastrophe, as Tolkien called it, God makes a way. And it's the very tension that serves to bring about the favorable outcome. And that's what we see in the book of Acts here, specifically in the sixth chapter. This passage is marked by tension. You see, things are, things are getting stirred up, and the stakes are extremely high. Think about this fact with me. We're talking about the church in Jerusalem. This is the church. You see, if things go wrong, if, if things devastate this church, there's not like another church to just go down the street to, okay? Think about um, when, when we tune in or we, we see like the news about like an endangered species giving birth. Like CNN is like there at the zoo or the wildlife preserve, like this rare panda is giving birth and everyone's looking on because if this thing dies out, they die out. Now, I'm Portuguese, so my grandfather was a cow rancher, and I saw cows being born. Needless to say, CNN never showed up to to see these cows being born because cows are born all the time. But when things are vulnerable, when the stakes are high, everyone is like hanging in there in the suspense, and that's what we see with this church. This is the church. What's going to happen? And so for someone reading through the book of Acts, especially if this is like your first time reading through the book of Acts, it should be causing you to think through the question, like, how is this thing going to work out? I don't actually get to resolve the story for us today, but I do want to address a few areas, specific areas of tension that the early church faced. And consequently, These are four areas of tension that a church today, like Collective Church and the church that I represent, need to be aware of, um, in a sense, need to come to grips with, 
And hopefully, by God's grace, we can reconcile. And so the first point of tension I want to look at tonight is the tension between word and deed. Word and deed. Now, as you remember from last week's talk, the gospel message is going out. It's impacting lives. Disciples are, are being made. Even racial divides are being torn down. Now, we see a little bit of tension here racially. Racial lines are being uh, torn apart, and, and they're being brought together. Community is growing. And so the thing about bringing enough people together is inevitably there will be difficulty. And so a complaint arose out from the Hellenists against the Hebrews, if you remember. And the Hellenists are saying against the Hebrews, our widows are not being taken care of. Our widows are falling through the cracks. here. They're, they're not being taken care of. They're not being loved well. Which just goes to show from their vocabulary that their perspective was just a little bit off. They're saying, they're, they're speaking against the Hebrews, which Ephesians 2 says that Jesus, in his death and resurrection, came to tear down that wall of hostility. Jesus was torn into two, literally, so that the two could be brought back together. And they're saying, our widows, our widows aren't being cared for. No, this is all of our widows here. If we are one body, if we're one church, that problem is our problem. And so their language shows that there is some sort of breakdown occurring. And so the apostles address it essentially by saying this. Okay, we've got a problem. We've got tension. And so it needs to be reconciled. On one hand, people need to be cared for. Especially our society's most vulnerable. Think about these widows, Hellenists. In that time in Jerusalem, it's believed that the Hellenists would have made up somewhere between 10 and 20% of Jerusalem. So they're a minority in that city. And then among that minority, they are a minority because they're a very niche group of widows. These are people that would have been believed to maybe been the most vulnerable people in that society at that time. And they need to be cared for. In fact, speaking of God, Deuteronomy chapter 10 verse 18 tells us this. He executes justice for the fatherless and for the widow. And he loves the sojourner. He's giving them food and clothing. These are the very people that are on God's heart, that he cares about, that he loves. So on one hand, people need to be cared for, but on the other hand, the gospel needs to be preached. The message needs to get out. This is the message and the only message through which men and women will be saved. This is the message that faith depends upon, the good news of Jesus Christ. This is the message that Romans 1 describes as the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. So this is very important to say the least. And so the question is, at this kind of junction, at this fork in the road, which way do we choose? Do we choose to be a church that's just marked by preaching the word? If we preach it, they'll come. Or do we step over here and we say, no, we're going to be a church marked by social justice. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna preach the gospel and, if necessary, use words. So wh- wh- which way do we choose? Well, it's neither. Because the word can't spread if they stop preaching and wait on tables. But on the other hand, Who's going to believe a message that leads people to not care about the society's most vulnerable individuals? You see, this is a church representing the resurrected Jesus. 
The resurrected Jesus, the Bible describes him as the first, fruits, first fruit of the resurrection. The first fruit of a spiritual and a physical renewal. Which means that in order to be faithful to Christ as a church, they would have to be, one, all about preaching God's word to seek spiritual renewal, and two, be all about caring for people and, speak, and seeking physical renewal. You see, as John Stott points out in his book, The Living Church, God's vision for his church is to be both a learning and proclaiming church and a caring church. The Spirit of God gives the church a voice and, at the same time, a tender social conscience. The local church must articulate the message, and at the same time, the local church must embody that same message. Romans chapter 10, verse 17 tells us, So faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. And then we also know that that faith is made manifest... And it's proved through a church's priority to care. Jesus says in John chapter 13, this is how the world's going to know that you're my disciples. Because you love one another. So what's the solution? What do we choose? Well, we know it's not making a choice. I know it's, we know it, we, we can't just go one direction or the other. We also know it can't be the leaders just saying, well, okay, if I just work an extra day and if we switch around these shifts and if I uh, maybe work some extra hours on this day and if I cut into my sermon prep and we cut this prayer meeting out, then we'll be able to accommodate these people. And the scripture's really clear, it's neither. Because Christ isn't embodied in a city by a few people doing all the work. But rather, they call on the church. They call on the very hands and feet of Jesus Christ. And they ask them to pray. And they ask them to discern. And they ask them to put forward people of good reputation and full of faith. Now, a lot of commentators have gone back and forth whether this was the first deacons in the church or whether this was maybe more of like a prototype to the office of deacon, or maybe just this was literally seven specific guys called to this specific task. Now, I will leave that up to your leaders to determine that and to work through that. I'm not here to establish your leadership for you. But I can tell you this. It's not saying appoint seven Greek male deacons and then you're set. Like Casey, like Lorenzo, it is my recommendation that you appoint seven Greek male deacons and then revival in the west side. My, my job's done, drop the mic, see you guys back to Stockton. <laughs> That's not what's being said here. Rather, it's setting the vision for the local church, being a people that have reconciled the tension of being about the word and about good deeds. It's inspiration for a church to be and every member ministry. The truth is, if you are a believer, if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, the word says that you are called, commissioned, empowered minister. If you are a believer, you are a called, commissioned, empowered minister of the gospel. 
No matter where you find yourself in the body of Christ, 1 Corinthians 12 makes it so explicitly clear that you are helpful, that you are vital, and that you are worthy of honor. Now, they didn't ask me to say this, but I come to find out that there is an individual or a group of individuals that every single Sunday goes and rents a box van, pulls it up to a storage unit, puts equipment on it, brings it here, sets it up, serves the church, packs it up, takes it back, drops off the van every single Sunday. I haven't met who that is, but those people are worthy of honor. That is honorable service to the body of Christ. And the list probably goes on and on and on of people that serve the body of Christ. I remember reading a story of a pastor who, about a year after baptizing a young uh, husband and father, was now with this young man as he was dying on his hospital bed, dying of brain cancer and taking his last breaths. And the pastor wrote in this article that he came in close to this young man who was right there at the edge, going in and out of consciousness, and he said these words to him. God loves you and approves of you. I'm going to lose it already. Page three. This is pathetic. God loves you and approves of you. The Lord is proud of you and ready to welcome you because of your faith in him. You are a mighty Man of God. As he's laying there, mouth open, gasping for breath, contributing nothing, and he says, you are a mighty man of God. As the angel of the Lord shows up to Gideon, who's threshing wheat in a cave, afraid of the enemies, the angel of the Lord says, you are a mighty man of valor. If you are a part of the body of Christ, that is the way that you are described, a mighty man or a mighty woman of valor. Whatever reason, God has used that, as you can tell, the story to really impact me. Over the years, as I've been often tempted to disregard people, use people, look down upon people, that every member of the body of Christ is an honorable member of the body of Christ. And you are loved, valued, and cared for, whether you serve publicly or privately, whether you speak from this pulpit or you sweep the hallway. You are valued and you're cherished. During this study, I couldn't help but think of members of our church. I think of Linda. I think she turned 60 this year. Um, Her husband has rejected God his whole life. In fact, many times he has railed her for her faith. And now sacrificially serves him as he's... uh, I visited him in the hospital last week. Now he's back in the hospital as of yesterday, possibly on his way out serving the person that has scorned her for her faith. Um, She's got a couple daughters, a 30-something-year-old special needs daughter who's married a 30-something-year-old special needs man, cares for them. 
has another daughter who's married, hit some financial crisis. She lives with her. But Linda also finds time to serve the body of Christ. Whenever we have a special event, she is there to set up and be hospitable, has a heart to pray for women, has a a heart to minister to women. I think of Tracy, who, though she was pulled away from us to be in Seattle to finish out her grad school, whenever she's back in town, serves in the kids' ministry. I I remember uh, multiple Sundays walking through the kids' ministry and seeing Tracy there smiling. I'm like, when did you get in? She's like, yesterday. I think of um, Josiah. We cry in Stockton, whatever. (laughs) I think of Josiah, probably one of the most talented musicians I'll ever meet. Tuesday afternoons, I pull in to my house, and I walk in, and there's Josiah upstairs teaching my son the songs for Sunday worship. He could be anywhere. He could be in Nashville. He could be in Los Angeles. Investing in people, investing in 10-year-olds. If you are a member of the body of Christ, you are a cherished, honored, mighty man and woman of God. And don't let anyone tell you otherwise. And so collective church, serve, love, speak, care with joy and courage. And so the outcome of this solution, it says with me in verse 5, or look with me in verse 5. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. Now, I'm, I'm sort of a new pastor. I haven't been out this long, but that rarely happens. <laughs> the whole gathering was pleased. <laughs> it says in verse 7 that the word of God increased disciples were made and even priests were coming to faith. And so the church that reconciles word and deed was used powerfully to reach their city. Will you take up the call to embrace that tension? The second is this, gathering and scattering. We see from this passage the whole church coming together, and then yet in verse 8, a member of that church, Stephen, is scattering and doing great works and great signs among the people. On one hand, they are What's represented in this passage is the function of the church. They're gathering, they're appointing, they're praying, they're worshiping, they're doing churchy type stuff. But then on the other hand, we see members of that same church scattering among the people, or better translated in the Greek would be in the people. Stephen is in and among the people. So he's not huddled up in a, kind of like down in a huddled position and throwing gospel grenades in and then hoping that they land. He is an integrated member of the community. He's in and among with them. So the church is a community that both gathers and scatters. And what I am confident about today is that by the sixth chapter of Acts, that's already explicitly clear. The people of God are a community that gathers and scatters. But I think that there's a purposeful contrast found in this passage between this pleased gathering, or literally collective, like what I did there, and this disrupted synagogue. Now, 
The synagogue, a little bit of history, the synagogue of the freedmen was a gathering of Greek-speaking Jews who were dispersed Jews who for various reasons, most likely due to war and slavery and horrible things like that, had been dispersed into various places like North Africa, into Turkey, and into Asia. And now for whatever circ- or by whatever circumstances, they're finally back. They're finally back in Jerusalem. Now, if you know anything about the Old Testament, that's huge. Jews that had been dispersed for so long are finally back in Jerusalem. In fact, that's so huge that the psalmist in Psalm 137 says, if I forget Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Okay, that's like a, a songwriter saying, if I stop writing love songs about you, let me forget how to play this guitar. Like, this is how important being back in Jerusalem would have been. And so for maybe for some of these people, there's like, finally. Like, this is their final, I'm finally home moment. We've been dispersed for so long. We have been pulled away for so long, and we're finally back, which gives us just a little bit of context to the emotions and the heatedness behind the words that he was saying. They were saying, this man never ceases to speak Words against this holy place in the law. You see, Stephen is there in and among the people proclaiming the truth of Jesus Christ. We would have been saying things like this. Now the law that you are trying to fulfill, it's been fulfilled. This temple and these rituals that you are trying to protect need to give way to something greater that has already come, namely Jesus Christ. The temple that was torn down and resurrected in three days. And they're thinking, wait, we're finally home? We're finally back here and you're saying this and you're trying to mess this all up for us now? See, the truth is, God's people find their, I'm finally home, not in a geographic location as important as geography is, nor do the people of God find their I'm finally home even in the church, as important as the church is for living out of Christianity. But rather, we are to find our I'm finally home in Jesus Christ. You see, he is the one whom the temple and the rituals and the traditions and the law ultimately pointed to. And the truth is, we aren't home until we're home in him. St. Augustine famously said in one of his prayers, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. All the various places that we run to entrust our souls, St. Augustine has it right, We are never at rest until our souls find their rest and their home in Jesus. And so the New Testament makes it really clear that the the kingdom of God, or at least it describes rather, the kingdom of God as both a centripetal and centrifugal force. On one hand, The kingdom of God gathers, it draws together, it unifies, it does like the very thing that we're experiencing right now, right? We've been gathered together, and we center around Jesus Christ. But on the other hand, it also scatters. 
It sends. It propels out. And so think about lungs. Inhale, exhale. Inhale, exhale. We gather to scatter, and we scatter so that we can gather. And so the church has to settle that our ultimate home... I got big ears. Sorry, guys. That our ultimate home is in God. The church has to settle that our ultimate home is in Christ. If not then we may begin to treat our gatherings as our true home. Which will lead our church to getting in what's been called before a holy huddle. We start to avoid things that could disrupt the refuge and the security. And so a church becomes a relic to be preserved. Like, don't, like, don't touch that. Don't mess that up. We've worked really hard to get that thing there. Don't come in here and mess it all up. I remember as a kid, and this may tell you a little bit about my upbringing, but we had a second living room that had this pristine white couch, okay? It was, it was during a time where, like, carpet was like a light color, blue, green, salmon <laughs> everywhere, and this, like, pristine white couch. I remember specifically the carpet in this room was vacuumed so perfectly. Like, I don't even understand how someone could vacuum this room so perfectly. And so the, the funny thing about this room was it was strictly forbidden. This, this room was strictly forbidden for my brother and I. And I remember specifically a, a couple times where we would be running around the house being crazy. He'd be chasing me. I was the younger brother. And I would run through the room back into the kitchen and I would turn back around and I would see my footprints in the carpet. Like in a spot where I'm not going to be able to like reach out and like iron out again. So the room was, was, was just this thing that, that, that couldn't be disrupted. And I, I honestly, as a, it may have been used when I was got older, but I can't recall it ever being used. Like th- this room, as nice as it looked, had absolutely no function. <laughs> it, it was just a, a weird salmon, white, blue room with no function that scared children. And so the thing is that we as believers are tempted to treat the church like that room. Like we've got, like we've got a good thing going here. Like don't, don't move. Don't mess it up. Like we can't welcome in anything that's going to disrupt our, our worship experience, this, this thing that we work so hard to build. Meanwhile, the gospel is at work. And when the gospel's at work, there's footprints in the carpet. When the gospel's at work, things get stirred up. Tension rises. Stakes are high. And things happen. And so a faithful church embraces the tension between the call to gather and to scatter. Third, the tension of reception and rejection. You guys still with me? All right. Reception and rejection. I don't want to dive too far into this because along with the call to gather and scatter, I think Acts has already shown you when the gospel is preached and lived out, it has this polarizing effect. We've seen from the book of Acts, on the day of Pentecost, the gospel message is going out into people's native dialect and they're like, I can hear. Like, I I hear the message. At the very same time, people are like, whoa, they started drinking really early in the day. Like, they must have hit the mimosa bar up in the upper room. At the same time, the same occurrence. 
We see in Acts chapter 2, it says that this church found favor with all people. And then yet, almost immediately, people are in jail. The truth is, that's what happens when we follow Jesus. Who himself was, at the same time, loved and despised. The Gospel of Luke begins with this thought. In Luke chapter 2, it says, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So Jesus grew in favor with man, and then Luke ends with the scene of the crucifixion. Even within one specific week, on Sunday, people are crying out, and Jesus is coming into the city in triumph, and people are waving palm branches and crying out, Hosanna. And that same Friday, Jesus is beaten, and people are crying out, crucify him. The church that is following that same Jesus is seeing that same outcome. Look with me in verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And so the word is getting traction, it's going like a ripple effect. People are getting saved. And Luke records that even many priests are being saved. People that would have been so opposed to God, the hearts are being softened. Opposed to reason and logic and what people would assume, these very men that would have been marked by a rejection of the message of Jesus Christ are softened and respond. Not only would they have been considered the least likely people to get saved, but for the priest that got saved, most likely meant they're out of a job. (laughs) Like these rituals, these traditions, this temple, it gives way to Jesus. I'm out of a job. And then in the same breath, literally, there's a dispute, instigation, Opposition is stirred, Stephen is seized and then dragged, and we can just imagine, not nicely, dragged before the council. And so the question is, was that a sign of failure? No. It was a sign of faithfulness. Wait, wait, which one was a sign of faithfulness? The fact that people are receiving them and getting saved, or the fact that Stephen's getting dragged before the council? Both. Both. And more importantly, it was a sign of the sovereign will of God. It was the unfolding of a wise plan of redemption. Who would receive him and who would reject him was not just a matter of where the cards would fall in this story, and nor is it the case today. But it is the unfolding of a plan of God to save in and through you guys. And so a courageous church embraces the tension between a favorable reception by some and a scornful rejection by others. The fourth point of tension and the final point is this, grace and power. I love this. Verse 8 
describes Stephen as one who is full of grace and power. These are not two things that I would naturally combine together. Think about grace. What is grace? Grace is the kind and loving favor of God that is not earned. That comes to us, that meets us in our weakness. The grace of God meets us in our powerlessness. The grace of God meets us in our failure and in our sin and in our need for rescue. That is the context for the grace of God. And yet, power. The Greek word here is dunamis, which means dynamite. Force, explosion, power. I get grace and mercy. And I get uh, like maybe power and glory, but grace and power. On one hand, you see the power of God at work within him. Like literally the power of the resurrected Jesus is being unleashed. He's performing miracles. He's speaking boldly. In fact, in verse 10 it says, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. He was a force to be reckoned with. Even the authorities of that day could not withstand the wisdom and the force and the authority of his speech. And yet, on the other hand, the grace of God has come to him. The grace of God that meets us in our weakness and powerlessness is sustaining him. And the grace of God is visibly coming out of him. And so, this answers maybe some of the questions that we may be raising and thinking about as we as a church are being called into this tension. Questions like this. How are we to be faithful to the call to be a word and deed church? That seems overwhelming. Or how are we to embrace the call to both gather and scatter? That seems like we're going to be stretched really thin. Or how are we going to be discerning and courageous in the midst of reception and rejection? I'm not sure I'm up for that. I'm not sure I have what that takes. And the answer is the grace and the power of God filling us. The presence of God enabling us. You see, the church needs a gracious view of power and a powerful view of grace. Because it won't be our cleverness. It's not going to be our grit. It's not going to be our determination, our self-will, or anything else that the church could give. It's going to be purely by the powerful grace of God at work in guys named Steve and Phil and Nick. <laughs> like, I thought about that this week. I was like, I wonder if his friends called him Steve. That helps me connect with this passage for some reason. <laughs> Through guys named Steve and Phil and Nick and Megan and Maria and Stephanie. The powerful grace of God at work within normal people. So the question is, how do we access that powerful grace? And I think the final verse gives us a little bit of insight. If you would turn with me, that final verse, verse 15. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. There's something different. There's something going on in the midst of his suffering 
I won't give the story away. But what Stephen is about to endure is not going to be fun. Stephen probably knows at this point his time has come. And yet there is a divine glow upon him. Now for the Jewish leaders at that time, the synagogue leaders and any student really of the Bible, this would draw our attention and our memory, a recollection back to Moses in Exodus 34 as God calls him up on the mountain and the Lord shows Moses his glory. And Moses comes down back to the people and it says his face is glowing. So much so that it scares people. They need to cover him with a veil. His face was glowing because he had been in the presence of the glory of God. So the final application point is this. A church will have a powerful impact through being in the gracious presence of God. And that's the call. That's the call of 2 Corinthians 3, that we are transformed as we behold the glory of Christ. And so that's the call to the church. Let's pray.